We'll be continuing the series in our church covenant with uh, this statement that we introduced or reminded ourselves of last week. It says, uh, to sustain ministry through financial support. Again, these are things that we are uh, saying that we are going to do. You just got to... You just gave everything away. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> we're looking at things that, that we are, that we are uh, committing ourselves to, right? And one of those things is to sustain ministry through financial support. And that means meeting the needs of the local body through monetary giving. All right. Currently, um, all of our giving is done electronically. We, don't, we haven't passed the plate for a while ever since uh, COVID started. Um, I think a lot of people were taking advantage of that ahead of time anyway, but uh, at the moment we're not passing the plate around every week, but, uh, but we still are uh, giving. And last week we, we started to look at this topic of giving, um, looking at the concept of the tithe. And we took a look at um, what those who preach in favor of a required tithe, uh, what they would believe and what they would put forth as the uh, as the method through which we should give. Um, and then we looked at the commands of Scripture and walked through the process of evaluating whether those commands still apply to us today. And as you know, my conclusion is that there is no requirement in Scripture for a New Testament believer to give 10% of their income to the local church. Um, however, that lack of a requirement does not negate the principles that we see in the tithe and in many other commands and examples regarding, regard, given regarding um, how we give. It's clear when you read scripture that God desires for us to give. You cannot get past that when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament. God expects his people to be people who give. For the Israelites, um, mostly it was within the nation of Israel. It was dealing with the, the Levites. It was to sustain them. It was to help the poor and the needy within Israelites and those who were even just passing through the sojourners to make sure that they were taken care of. In the New Testament church, um, we really see most of the giving being done inside the church to people who are in need. We have passages that we looked at where they were sending, they were taking care of the needs in the, in the immediate church. They were sending uh, gifts to another church in Jerusalem, which is what it's talking about in this passage. We see that there are uh, gifts that are given to other people, including Paul. And we looked at that even last week. So it's clear that God desires us to be people who give. Um, as I stated before, there's, there's really no way for us to spend all the time necessary to go over every passage in Scripture that talks about giving. Um, so last week we looked at a very common issue about giving. But tonight I want to look at not, not a bunch of commands about giving, but rather the heart of giving. The, the title of the message, which has been preemptively shown to you, is <laughs> The Heart of Godly Giving. And I, I originally uh, titled this The Heart of New Testament Giving. But as I studied this more and more, as I read more and more from the Old Testament and the New Testament, I realized that really what we're going to look at tonight is the heart that God has always desired his people throughout all time to have when it comes to giving. So that's why it's the heart of godly giving. I believe that godly giving has more to do with our attitude in giving than our actions in giving. 
A godly attitude towards giving will result in godly acts of giving. Let me say that again. A godly attitude in giving will result in godly acts of giving. So the big idea this evening, and I'll try to leave it up there long enough for you to scribble it down if you're taking notes. It's not my longest one. But the big idea this evening is this. When we give the way God designed and desires us to give, needs will be met, others will be encouraged, and God will be glorified. When we give the way God designed and desires us to give, needs will be met, others will be encouraged, and God will be glorified. Before we jump into our passage this evening, I want to just very quickly help us understand the context of this passage. We read uh, several verses at the beginning of this chapter, which we're not going to go through in the sermon, but part of that was just to kind of get some context of, of what we're going to be covering this evening. Um, but this is the second book or second letter that has been written to the Corinthians. And if you've read the first letter, you know that it was uh, pretty brutal, right? There's a lot of issues that Paul had to deal with, uh, with the Corinthian church. And in the first letter, there was a lot of things that he covered. But at the end of the first letter, we see a command that Paul gives, and we actually looked at this last week, um, to the Corinthian church that he has given to a lot of the churches in, uh, in that area. And basically it is to participate in helping with the needs of the people in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. So he was gathering these different churches and having them put, th- put money aside to be able to send up to the church in Jerusalem to help those who were in need as they were under persecution. So Paul's writing the second, uh, the second letter and it's kind of a, a follow-up letter. And as we read in chapter seven, we find out that Titus has just come back from, uh, from Corinth and he has given Paul a good uh, report of, Corinthi- of the, Cor- the church of Corinth. And uh, this is really cutting out. <laughs> is it driving you crazy? Is it bad? Let me try. Is this one better? I don't. I think it might be the spot. No, it's not. It must be speed like. All right. All right. So the second letter. It's gonna cut out. Watch. Uh, the second letter is being sent because Timothy has come. In chapter seven, it says that he has given a good report. And he's come and said that they, they are ready. They're, they're, they're eager to do this thing. And in fact, we looked at uh, cha- the beginning of chapter 8 last week and saw that the report from, t- from Titus was given and, and Paul was using that to, to tell other churches around. In fact, at the beginning of chapter 9, we see that their actions and their eagerness was motivating other churches to participate as well. And so we see... Uh, that in the beginning of chapter 8, we have the Macedonians. If you remember, the Macedonians were giving, even out of their uh, poverty, they were giving. They were anxious to give. And part of that is because of the testimony of the church at Corinth. And so we come to chapter 9, and Paul, chapters 8 and 9, really, both together. But Paul is telling them that he's sending people to come and collect the gift. And he's giving them instruction to make sure that they are ready and that the gift that they had were so eager to give that they, that they don't show up and they're empty-handed. And so he's, he's helping them with their own reputation, for one thing. But he's also helping to make sure that they are doing the things necessary to get to a point to where that gift is ready and available when they come. 
And so that is the context of everything that's leading up to uh, at least this immediate, immediate area of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. So we've already read through the, the chapter, um, but we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 15. And, and Paul starts off um, with this phrase. The point is this. The point is this. Now, this is one of those phrases that you come to in Scripture, and it should make your ears perk, right? It should make you be like, wait, what? Okay, something important is about to be said, right? He's he's been talking about all these things, and now he's drawing it. Like, this is about the most obvious way that Paul draws a conclusion, right? Sometimes it's, therefore, you know, here's the information. Uh, This is probably, I think, one of the most stark ways that he does it. But he says, here's the point. Right? That's the, the Welsh translation. Here's the point. All of these things that I've been telling you, all these, these instructions that I've been giving you, here is the point. And I, I think it's good for us to take a look at each of these points. We're going to look at each of these phrases, and I'm going to not necessarily break them up as tiny as possible. We're, we're going to leave them a little bit longer, and some of them are going to be pretty long. Um, But as we look at these different phrases, we're going to look at the heart that Paul is trying to get at, because that's what he's talking about here. See, he says, I'm giving you all these instructions, but here's the point. All these things that you're supposed to do should come from a heart that desires to give. All of these things should come from a godly heart that desires to give. And, And let me explain to you what that looks like and why. All right. And so here's what he's going to Give to us. The first way of giving or the way of thinking about giving, um, the attitude that we should have about giving is that we should give generously. We should give generously. It says here, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Uh, scripture uses this content, this, this concept of sowing and reaping a lot. Um, it's used in many different contexts. Sometimes we, we see it in terms of um, salvation. Sometimes we see it in, in terms of the word of God. Uh, this particular use is talking about how we give. All right. And so he's saying, if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. The point that Paul is making here is that giving produces a harvest that is equal to and greater than the gift. It's in proportion to the gift. There's a harvest that is, that is made when we give. How many of you have thought about that when it comes to what you give? We don't just give out of habit. We don't just give out of duty. We give and God uses that to produce a harvest. Have you ever thought about that? God uses what you give to produce a harvest. And he says, if you give sparingly, your harvest will be small, sparingly. If you give generously or bountifully, then your harvest will be bountiful. We'll get to what that is here in a minute. But there's a sowing and reaping principle. As you sow, as you give, so the harvest will come. If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. Paul's intention is not to give sparingly. 
That's not Paul's point. He's not saying, look, you've got two choices. You can do it this way or you can do it this way. He's using this comparison to show them that there is a, there is a reward, a blessing for those who give generously. Paul's desire in this statement is to point their eyes and their minds to the fact that giving is a reap, sowing and reaping system. And as they sow, they will reap more in this harvest if they are more generous. I think it's interesting that uh, generosity is something that is not normal within us. I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not naturally a generous person. I'm not naturally the type of person that just is happy to go take care of, you know, somebody else's bills or, you know, do things like that. I'm just not. In my flesh, I'm not a generous person. But it's interesting that when we are submitting to God, when we are learning from him, when we're growing in him, he changes our heart and he makes us generous people. And if, if you're sitting here tonight and you say, you know what, I, you know, I don't know about this generosity thing, you might want to check your heart. You might want to check your relationship with, with God because when you're right with God and you have that fellowship with God, there's going to be generosity. And I think it's interesting, even in somebody who didn't spend a whole lot of time with Christ, um, it really changed his view of money. And, that, and his name is Zacchaeus. When, when Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house and he spent some time with him and he got to know him, it changed the way that he thought about his stuff. What did he say? He said, I will give half of everything I have to the poor, right? And, th- and we don't have any context there that says that Jesus was, you know, poking him about as well. We, we, don't know, we don't know what the conversation was, but we see his response to Christ in his home and interacting with him and his response is, I need, to, I need to fix some things. And part of that is not just fixing things, but also generously fixing them. He says, I'll give half of everything I own to the poor and then anybody who I've defrauded, what, will I, what does he say he's gonna give them? Fourfold, four times. Whatever he defrauded them of, he'll pay them back four times. That's generosity. We see other forms of generosity when people come into contact with Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13 gives us this account. It says, Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head, and as he reclined at table, and when his disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, where, the gospel, where this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We have this woman with this extravagant gift that she is giving. And it's so extravagant that it makes other people around her angry. I think, personally, I think they were jealous (laughs) because they saw the extravagant nature of this gift and they knew that they hadn't done anything like that. 
But they see this extravagant gift that she gives and it causes them to be angry. Those self-righteous people responded not in joy, but in anger at the extravagant nature of this gift. These are just two examples of what it looks like to give generously. We can go back and, and look at some other examples that we even saw last week. But the heart that we see in these examples and the heart that I think Paul is drawing us to here in this first phrase is one of generosity. Understanding that when we give generously, we will reap generously. The next attitude that we should have is that we should give thoughtfully and prayerfully. Thoughtfully and prayerfully. I've added the prayerfully part in here. But the next phrase says this, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Um, I'm of the opinion that Paul probably would have agreed uh, that deciding what you're gonna give should include prayer. Um, He isn't explicit in that, but I think that that's a good uh, thing to include. So you can write in prayerfully if you'd like, or if you don't want to, you don't have to. But give thoughtfully and prayerfully. And Paul here is encouraging the Corinthians not just to give generously, but to think about what they're going to give. To think about what they're going to give. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. This isn't just a a quick one-time you know, rummage through the wallet and throw something in the offering plate, right? This isn't, uh, this isn't, well, the pastor said I have to do this much. This is thoughtfully and I think prayerfully going before the Lord and saying, Lord, what do you want us to give? If it's your family, if it's an individual, what do you want me to give? What do you desire I give back to you? That's the attitude that Paul is is calling for. He's calling for us to think about this. This is something that should be planned, something that should be thought through. How much do we give to God? And Paul is, is telling them that this needs to be something that is a thoughtful process. I must ask at this point, when you think about that, what's your criteria? When you make that plan for how much you're going to give, whether it's an amount or whether it's a percentage or however you choose to do that, what is your criteria? Do we give whatever is comfortable? Or do we give what we believe is generous? Do we give a certain amount because that's what we've always given? Or do we look to see if maybe God wants us to increase it? I can tell you this, I haven't found a passage yet where God wants people to decrease it. Just being honest with you. But do we give out of duty or do we give out of comfort or do we give generously? I think that's something that we should consider. It's easy for us in our modern age where we, we may not see the needs necessarily as easily as they did back in their society. Um, it's easy for us to just kind of do our duty. We give our percent or we give our certain amount of money, um, whatever we think fits, right? How often do we do the budget and whatever's left over is what gets given? I don't think that's what Paul is aiming at. I think he's aiming at, for, at us being explicit and, and making it important 
to know what we're going to give. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. I think you look at this passage about the rich young ruler, and here is a guy who had all the duty down. Right? He had, he had, all, the, he had all the points down. You know, if, for him, tithing was a requirement. Right? He was a Jew. He was an Israelite. It was part of the law. And so he had it all down. Right? What does it say? Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 22. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We have described for us in this passage a young man who has faithfully kept the law. And that would include the tithes and the offerings and other forms of giving that we required, um, taking care of the poor and the needy. And he stands here asking what else he must do. And Jesus tells him to forsake all of the security of his wealth and come and follow him. And he says he walks away sad because he couldn't do it. Because his security and his hope was found in money. And I can't help but wonder how often we as the church are the exact same way. We say that we trust God and we believe him for everything that, that we need. But we don't live and give generously. Because we got to make sure everything is in place. At least we got to make sure everything's in place comfortably, right? We don't want to give up the streaming service or the coffee or whatever your vice is, right? When maybe God could be doing something more with our comfort. What is too much for us when it comes to giving to God? I'm not saying that we have to give everything away like Christ said to this rich young ruler, but, but what is enough? What do we consider is enough to give to God? And is it biblical? Maybe 5% is a lot. And it's an uncomfortable amount because maybe you haven't given to him on a consistent basis. And maybe that's a good place to start. Maybe 10% is an easy amount and you've done it for years and it's no big deal. Maybe God desires more. Paul is calling the Corinthians in this phrase not to just give comfortably, but to give thoughtfully and generously, understanding that there is a harvest to be reaped when we give. We are to give Thoughtfully and prayerfully, we're to give generously. But thirdly, we're to give eagerly and joyfully. This is a hard one. I, I can get behind giving generously. 
You know, I can get behind planning, you know, praying about it. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? But, you know, if God wants me to give that much, I don't have to be happy about it, right? <laughs> give eagerly and joyfully. It says, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, right? Don't give reluctantly, I guess. You know, God convicted me this week, so I guess I should give more. You know, that's not what he's talking about. We're not under compulsion, not because somebody stood up here and said, you should be giving this much, or you should increase it by this much, or whatever, you know, you think is that, is that uh, uh, compulsion. It's not to please man, it's to please God. Because God loves a cheerful giver. It's the attitude with which we give that's more important than the act of giving itself. Give eagerly and joyfully. I think you could also use the word willingly. (laughs) But I like the word equally, um, or eagerly, I should say. Um, I think these are good contrasts to what he's saying, how he's saying we shouldn't do it. Right? These are eagerly and joyfully, not reluctantly or under compulsion. You know, sometimes um, my dog will walk up to me and she'll just stare at me. And my family knows this is true. And she'll, she'll just stare at me. And, and I'll, you know, ask her if she wants to go outside and she'll just stand there and stare at me. Do you, you know, do you want, are you, do you need food? Do you want a treat? Usually the treat will, will elicit some sort of response. But sometimes she'll just literally stand there and stare at me the entire time. And it's like I'm talking to... Uh, a brick wall. I don't know. I don't know what she wants. Uh, she's she's obviously looking for something from me, but I don't know what it is. And I think sometimes um, that's how God desires us to be in the realm of giving. We should be eagerly looking for ways that we can help others. We should be that dog, just standing there, like let's let's go. You know, let's where where's the opportunity, right? Where's the opportunity? She stands there and looks at me and I'm trying to figure out what the opportunity is that she wants, but she's eager for something and her tail's going back and forth. And that's the picture that I have when I think about this. We should be eager and joyful to give. Another negative example from scripture is back in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the commands, in the law, God says in Deuteronomy 15, seven through 11, if among you, One of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart or shut up your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. It's interesting. This example gives us, uh, is given to us from the law of Moses, right? That we looked at last week. This is another one of those ways that they were commanded to give. And in this instance, it's really more of a loan 
than just straight out giving and not expecting anything back. But this is more of a loan. But what's the problem here? The problem is this person sees someone in need, has the means to help them, and then decides they don't want to, to do that. And the reason why is because he knows that the seventh year is coming up. Anybody know what's special about the seventh year? Forgiveness. All the debts in Israel wiped clean. And so this person looks at this person in need and says, I don't want to, get, I don't want to lend to them because I'm never going to get paid back. And he says, and God says to them, do it. And he warns them, don't do it grudgingly just because the law says I have to do this. But what? Do it with an open hand. This is, this is the attitude that Paul is giving to us all the way here in the New Testament as well. We should be eager and joyful to give to those who are in need. That is the heart of God. We should be giving generously. We should be giving um, thoughtfully and prayerfully. We should be giving eagerly and joyfully. This next one is going to be a good chunk here. I, I, this, it's kind of a little bit weird, all the things that are going on. But, um, but the next attitude we should have towards giving is that we should give responsibly. I didn't spell that wrong. <laughs> all right, we should give responsibly. Not necessarily responsibly. I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of bad stewardship teaching in churches. We are called to be stewards, but we're also called to be generous, all right? So give responsively. Let's look at these, these few verses here. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. What's he saying here? God is going to provide everything you need to give the way he desires you to give. God will provide what you need to give the way he wants you to give. Because he owns it all. He has all the resources to give you everything you need. And it says he'll even increase what you sow so that he can increase the harvest. Because it all comes from God. I think this one's going out too. When I was a kid, we used to go back to Illinois and visit um, my grandparents. Both, both sets of grandparents uh, lived in the same town, so we'd see both of them. But, uh, but we would go to church with my, my mother's parents. And I remember we would be sitting in the pews during the service. And of course, you know, back then before COVID, <laughs> you, could, you could pass the plate. And uh, they would pass the offering plate. And as we passed the offering plate, obviously we were visitors, so we didn't give to the church generally. You know, we were just going to be there for one week. And, and so God, uh, so we would sit there, you know, patiently waiting for the, uh, for the uh, plate to be passed. But once in a while, my grandmother would 
dip into her purse and she'd pull out her little coin purse. And sometimes it would be a quarter or a dollar or something like that. And she'd pass that, sometimes it'd be a lifesaver. Um, and she would pass that down to, to us to put into the offering plate. And as I was looking at this passage and thinking about what Paul's teaching here, I couldn't help but think of my grandmother and passing that quarter down or passing that dollar down. And it wasn't just us. I remember when everybody was in town, if I were sitting behind her, you'd see her passing coins down to the other grandkids, you know, to put in the, because she always wanted us to have something to put in the offering plate. And I kind of, that's how I kind of view God. He always provides what we need to give the way he wants us to give. First Chronicles 29. Yes, Chronicles, back in the Old Testament, 29 verses 10 through 17. This is the end of First Chronicles. They've gathered all the things for the temple. David was not allowed to build the temple, but he was allowed to gather the things for the temple so that Solomon could build it. And so he's gathered all these things and the, and the Israelites have been generous and they've given over and above what was necessary to do the work that they had. And, and in verse 10, David says this, or therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, blessed are you, our Lord, the God of Israel, our father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as, a, uh, as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise you for your glorious name. And look at this attitude. But who am I? And what is my people? That we should be able thus to offer willingly. For all things come from you, and of, and of your own have we given you. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Our Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. Is that how we come to God with our giving? Is it just a mental concept that everything is owned by God or is it a reality of how we give? Do we give knowing that it's his and give with eagerness and joy because he's the one that's provided it? That's what David is doing here. He's, he's giving us this heart of eagerness. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. 
We talked last week about the fact that giving is an act of worship. When we give, it is an act of worship. And in doing that act of worship, we understand that we are able to give because God has given so much to us. It is God who gives us the the ability to do good works through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is God who supplies the seed we sow in giving. It is God who provides the harvest of righteousness in ourselves and in those whom we bless. When we understand that it is God who, who benefits us to give, we should begin to give in a grateful response to what he has given us. And as we're faithful, God will continue to provide and even increase so that we can give more. As we are faithful to give generously and joyfully and all these other ways, (laughs) I don't have right in front of me. As we're faithful, God is going to be faithful to give us more opportunities to do it. What happens though, when we give generously, when we give thoughtfully and prayerfully, when we give eagerly and joyfully and responsibly. He says, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us, us meaning Paul and those who would be taking this gift, through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. If we give the way God desires us to give, what will happen? God will be glorified and others will be edified. God will be glorified and others will be edified. Godly giving always produces glory for him. God is glorified by us when we give with a heart that he's described in this passage. But not only does he get glory through us, he receives glory through those who are blessed in our giving. Notice it says that we're not only meeting the needs of the saints, but the gift is overflowing in thanksgiving to God. You know, Paul was on the receiving end of giving, and, and he, he kind of exemplifies what this looks like. Uh, We looked at this last week, but Philippians chapter four, verses 18 through 20 says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. He says, when this gift goes, they are going to respond in thanksgiving. They're going to glorify God because of the work that you have done. If you do it in the right way. The next verse clearly states that they will glorify God. It says, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. What is their response? Yes, it's glorifying God, but I think this passage gives us another response here, and that is a greater sense of unity in the body of Christ. What is it? What does it says they'll do? They'll be, they'll be thankful for it and they'll glorify God, but then what are they going to do? They're going to pray for you. 
There's going to be a love that is increased between you and them, you and your giving and them and their receiving. There will be this love and unity that is created when we give the way God desires us to give. Because both the giver and the receiver are coming at this from the right perspective. Understanding that God is the one at work in all of it. God is the one at work in the giver and in the receiver. We see growth. Think about the many ways that giving is used in the church today. Yes, it's used to meet needs of people through benevolent acts, but it's used to support the preaching and teaching of the word of God, both here and around the world. So that people are edified through the preaching and teaching and discipleship and many different things that go on in the church. That's why we give. Not because we have to. Not because there's a command. But because God has given to us. And we are simply avenues of his grace. And Paul ends this with this phrase, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is he talking about? I think he could be talking about several things. I think, first of all, he could be talking about the fact that everything that we have to give comes from God. Thanks be to God for his gift to us so that we can give to others. I think that's applicable. Thanks be to God for uh, this gift of unity in the church and love that is, that is a, a, a harvest of that giving, edification and glorification, all those things happening in the church when we give the way God desires us, us to give, that is a gift that God gives to the church. But I think most of all, it is the gift of his son. If you read back in chapter eight, Paul reminds them in verse nine, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Men, if you would come and prepare yourselves for the Lord's Supper.